Okay, normally this is when I actually get off the stage. But today, I, well, you know what? I'm going to still get off the stage. How's that? There we go. Uh, okay, well, guys, my name is uh, Nick Spring. I am, uh, my wife Lizzie and I, we lead the young adults here at HFFDFW. And so I just wanted to say uh, thank you for everyone who's tuning in online and for those of you who have shown up today to uh, just hear from what I, from me and hopefully from what, what God wants me to share with, with you. Um, I will let you know up front, I am not a public speaker. I will let you know up front, I'm not actually a worship leader that often. This is all very new for me. So my nerves are fried, but you know what? God is good. And he has given me time to try to piece together something that has been weighing on my heart for quite a while. Um, so as I mentioned, Lizzie and I, we, uh, we lead young adults. And as young adult leaders, we get the opportunity just to watch young people cultivate relationships, connect. But you can learn a lot from somebody by watching them. You get to discover how they behave, who they talk to, how they talk to that person. You kind of get, get a little bit of an inclining of where they come from. Sometimes you discover a little bit about their family, maybe how their parents were, because if we like it or not, we bring a lot of our parents with us wherever we go. And so the, the title of uh, what I want to share with you is called Like Father, Like Son. So my wife and I, we, uh, some of you know this, but we have been married for about 10 years. And during those 10 years, we've been trying to have kids and it hasn't happened. And while that has been a struggle, there's been so much sweetness in that moment as well, because God has shown, shown up every single time. But as hopeful parents, we get the opportunity of watching all of you parents out there, and we get to take notes on what you guys are doing right and what you guys are doing wrong. And we get, a, we get an opportunity to kind of, hmm, what are we going to do when we get the chance to parent? And it's a fun conversation in the car, and we both have admittedly admitted that we probably are not going to do anything that we're talking about. Um, I'm sure many of you have been there. Um, we are actually watching a show called The Parent Test right now. Is Parent Parent Test? And I believe they have about eight different families, and each parent group, each set with their kids, is implementing a different parenting model. And so you have uh, high-performance parenting. You've got kind of that... Lizzie, help me out. Where are some other names out there? They got the uh, authoritative, they've got the permissive, traditional. They go through all the models, and basically, you get to watch these parents and their kids get put in interesting situations where the parents have to see how their parenting model is working. When these kids are faced with a challenge, maybe that they have never had to face before, and we get to see if the, ch the child, one, trusts the parent, and two, if the child is actually going to listen to the parent. Is that model working? So it's fascinating. Um, I don't think there's any one parenting model that we gravitate towards. I lean a little traditional, but at the end of the day, I do think that we are probably going to do our best to pick a little bit out of this one and a little bit out of this one and ultimately create what we hope is the most well-rounded, most beneficial parenting model we can. And we've had time to practice that and to implement those things. But because I am not the expert in parenting and many of you out there are, I would like to first say, let's raise our hands, if any of you have ever been, had parents, biological or otherwise. 
I would hope all hands go up because then we got a serious, it's not a trick question. Biological otherwise, have, has everyone in here had parents? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so good. We're all starting off at the same point. We've all had parents. We've all been subject to kind of what, the, what parenting does to us, good and bad. So I guess the next question I would have for you is, what does it mean to be a parent? Now, I have my ideas, but then again, I'm not the professional here. Uh, does anybody, anybody want to offer some just off the, from the belt? What, what, are some, what, what does parenting do? What are some uh, successful parenting provisions? Discipline. Okay, Christian. Good. That's a good one. Any other ones? Thank you, Christian, by the way. Education, that's a big one. hundred percent. Consistency. So you guys are actually graduated from where I was starting. I was thinking clothes, shelter, food, kind of the basics. Because at the end of the day, when the baby comes out of that birth canal and it's just legs and arms are swinging, it can't even see past this point. It's crying to the world and it needs food. It needs covering. It needs protection. It needs its parent. It needs its parents. Let me correct myself there. Because we know that if a child was put into the street after birth, and if it was left there too long, it wouldn't make it. And with the beautiful thing in the ancient world, and this isn't something that was really part of what I'm talking about, but there were families that struggled. I mean, we don't. They had. A, there were systems in place to help families, but not the systems that we have. And a family that was going to have a baby, but they're like, we are, we are maxed. We can't do this. Maybe they're, not, they're unfit to be parents. What is the outcome of that child? Does the child get put in the street and left there? Or does the community come around that child and bring it in? Because here's the thing. There's something called adoption by water. And what would happen is that child would be born into the amniotic fluid, and they collect it in a container. They put the amniotic fluid in there, and it's kind of a saltwater mix. A little hint there. And they would put it out in the street. And the community, of, um, obviously, obviously, they probably were expecting this event. It's happening. They're waiting for that child to be brought out, and they take that child, and they set it down in the street, and the entire community is around it. And I'm going to assume there was someone that was already planning on doing this, but someone reaches into that amniotic fluid, picks that child up out of the fluid, and that child is legally theirs. That sounds very familiar to when someone we know was dipped into a saltwater mix and lifted out. And what was the first thing we hear? You are my son who I am well pleased. Adoption by water. It's important. And birth and all of that happens there because if that child is put in the street and there isn't a community around that child, there isn't a support system, there isn't a family ready to take that child in, that child will die because it doesn't have clothing, shelter, food. But like you guys all mentioned, education is huge. Parenting is just, isn't just providing things. We're trying to communicate something that is more than the physical. So I heard uh, discipline. These are intangibles, guys. Education. Raising them up in the way they should go. So while we do give them the things they need to survive... What would you say is the mark of successful parenting? And let me, let me do a little bit of a disclaimer here. I understand that we all are going to do the best we can. We're not going to get it right. We're going to do everything we knew how, and sometimes our kids are going to run off and do everything we told them not to do. This isn't a rebuke on your parenting. 
but this is understanding how important your parenting is. Because at the end of the day, the Bible does say, if you raise them up in the way they should go when they are older, they will not depart from it. And I like to think there's this interesting time in between these two polar points. There's this, there's this wrestling in between being raised up and not departing from it. I was an adolescent at one point. I had friends. I had ideas. I had things that my parents didn't raise me in doing, and I went and I rebelled against them. Kind of like that prodigal son story. He ends up leaving his father's home and takes his inheritance and spoils it and finds himself all alone. But he knew where to go back to. We know the father raised him right. So while this isn't to say just because your kid may not have followed all the things you tried to implement into their life, know that what you did in the beginning matters. The seeds that you planted will bear fruit, and that will happen. It may not happen now, but it will happen because God, that is a promise from God. Raise them up in the way they should go, and when they're older, they won't depart from it. So I want you to take that with you because I don't want this to be discouraging. Because parenting, while I haven't had the opportunity to do it, just from watching all you all, it looks like it's pretty hard. Okay? So I don't want you to be beating yourself up. I don't want this to be one of those moments where you're just down on yourself because at the end of the day, we all are doing the best we can. I know me and Lizzie, we're going to do the best we can. We're excited for it. So what are the signs of successful parenting? In a way, the clothing that we provide, they are able to clothe themselves. Uh, the shelter we provide, they are able to build the shelter for themselves. The food that we provide, they are able to acquire that food themselves. In a way, what we provided to them in their infanthood, they are able to acquire in their own way. And so part of successful parenting is getting them out of the house, guys. They're not supposed to be living in, in your house until they're 55 years old. Now, I know that line of when they depart is different for everyone, and circumstances can dictate that it's appropriate that they stay longer. But the goal is to take that child and send them out into the dangerous world where they can survive without you being holding their hand right around them and protecting them. Because at the end of the day, we are not called to be their protection. He is called to be our protection. We are simply just facilitating the model that they can grab onto so that when they meet him, they can connect those dots. And in a weird way, even our failures drive them towards the perfection of the Father. If we were perfect, they wouldn't be looking for the Father. They'd be keeping their eyes on us. But the fact is we are imperfect creatures and God in his grace and in his mercy is able to use us to be influential in such an important time in their life. So at the end of the day, we are trying to translate to them not only physical but spiritual food, trying to communicate to them morals and ethics and value, a value system. These are intangibles. And in its simplicity, what we are trying to do is say, I know how I was raised. These are the things I want to leave behind. These are the things I want to take with us. I want to try to transmit that to my child so that what they, in essence, become is a carbon copy of myself. We, in essence, are called and created to create image bearers. It is built into our DNA, and God does use the physical to communicate spiritual language. So think about this. The older I get the more I recognize my dad. My mom and my dad have brown eyes. I got brown eyes if I like it or not. When I get older, well, even now, I look at my hands, and what's so crazy is I see my dad's hands. And I only, I'd, only, I'd, only, I'd only see them from a 43-year-old from a perspective. I remember them as a 6-year-old. It's kind of crazy how your dad's hands 
kind of, they leave a mark, not a mark, but they definitely leave a mark, okay? If they're leaving a mark, we gotta talk, guys. There's different ways to do this. But the hands, the fingerprints, the creases, I don't know how I got my dad's creases because I know we do different things, but the fact is, when I look at my hands, I see my dad's hands. And nothing I can do will change that. I am biologically connected to my mom and my dad, and I am, in essence, a, a copy of them. The best of them, hopefully, has been transmitted to me, and hopefully I can take that between Lizzie and I, and we can pass that on to our kids, and we create what is a continuation from parent to child, from child who becomes an adult to parent, and we continue that cycle. And that cycle has been going on since the beginning. So while we understand biologically we are all kind of bound to that parental passing on or that, that phys the physical traits of sorts, we also are passing on those, the value systems. But when does that transference begin? I know that you guys think that me and Lizzie came here because we were desperate for community. We were lonely and we had nothing going for us, but the fact is that's just simply not true. We have been here maybe under a year at this point, I don't know how many months, but prior to that, we've been married for about 10 years and we were happy. We're living at home. We had, we had people that spoke into our lives. We had the iron and sharpening iron. We had resources where we could really feed on the word of God. We were spiritually being fed. We were loving our Shabbats. But there was this persistent desire throughout those 10 years that we want to have kids. And we started talking about that. We're like, I want to raise my kid in a community. So it wasn't about us necessarily. While we are being blessed by you, don't, don't get me wrong. We are glad that we are here. But it was because we wanted to set up the stage for our child when they arrive. And I would like to submit that it's no different with our father in heaven. While we go to the book of Genesis, and we may look at that book in different ways. Some people see it as the physical origins of creation, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. Some people look at it as it's not the very big beginning, but what we're looking at is an uh, actual awakening of an individual that God calls, and he's the first one to respond to him and say, I will give you my loyalty, you are my king. I think that's great too. But I don't think they were walking around naked. I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I'm very logical, but I think the language that's being used to show that even in, the, here they are, they're in a house, they have shelter. God says, eat of all the fruit freely, pick of it. You don't have to work for that. I will provide the food. You don't even need clothes because I am your covering. And in essence, we're seeing babies that are just so dependent upon him in the garden. But even before Adam was formed from the earth and God breathed his life into them, he gave them something that I didn't quite see until recently. And I think we do the same thing. We may not realize it. But God had a conversation in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. He said, then God said, let us make humankind in our image in the likeness of ourselves and let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air and the animals and all over the earth and over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. Now, I want to stop right there because what we're reading is God is saying, let us make them in our image. And then he describes his image. While Okay, yes, that is his image, and he's going to create man in that image. But he's outlining what that image is, and that image is 
to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the air, the animals, and over all the earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. Then so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, it sounds very familiar because this is the image. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. He's repeating himself. And every living creature that crawls on the earth. So God had a conversation, and how that conversation happened is a mystery in itself. But even before he breathed the breath of life, and it is a very uh, suspenseful moment, uh, even, <laughs> uh, even before he breathed the breath of life into Adam, he had a conversation about who will Adam be. And I like to think the earthly experience is not too far, far from that spot. Some of you, the minute you started changing your life is when you saw a positive pregnancy test. And you started looking around at that bookshelf like, ooh, I got to get that book off. I don't want my kids to see that book. Oh, those movies, oh, I'm a little nervous about that one. Oh, the kind of music I listen to, the clothes that, I mean, these are all physical things, but we recognize that they, they communicate value. They communicate something. And we start kind of looking around our environment. And for me and Lizzie, we said, hey, she and I are not enough. We need to find a community. Let's find a community and plug in because we want, to, we want to create an environment for the child before the child even arrives. So the act of creation doesn't begin in creation itself, but begins before creation with the conversation. I think parents, sometimes they're young parents and all of a sudden surprise we're pregnant and they're not even ready to figure out what that image is, but they try. And some parents who maybe have a little bit more time to think about that, like Lizzie and myself, we have opportunity to try to actually determine what we want to keep and what we want to get rid of. But it doesn't disconnect us from the idea that the first thing that God gave us as his creation was his image in conversation. He planned in advance what we would be. And so in, in conclusion to that concept, the process of creation begins before the physical act of creation. And is it any different with, with our Heavenly Father? So if you read in Genesis 5, 1 through 5, we recognize that Adam, was Adam and Eve were created in God's image, and it says, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Okay, we got that down, right? He had the conversation. He implements his image upon them. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind And when they were, crea and when they were created. And when Adam was 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own... Wait a minute. Wait, what, what happened between being made in the image of God and now Adam's making someone in his own image, in his own likeness? Hmm. I think we all know this story. Adam and Eve were in the garden the serpent comes in. There's a lot of talk on whose fault it is. I don't really care to answer that question right now. All I know is that Eve was deceived. She ate the fruit. Adam had the opportunity to turn that all around, and he didn't. And when he ate, God passed judgment on the entire family. And at that point, they recognized that they had stepped out of the image that God had given them, and they recognized their own weakness. Now they truly were exposed. They saw their nakedness. They no longer had the protection. And so, while God gave them their image, it still carried a responsibility that if you are going to be made in my image, you must behave as the image I gave you. 
And Adam and Eve, for whatever reason, I think some of us could argue that they were still infants trying to figure it out, just like our kids do sometimes. They don't get it right. But they messed up, and ultimately they left the house not doing what God had created them to do. And so death entered the world, and this was a big deal. The entire earth was transformed. All of a sudden it became hard. That food that was freely given, now you had to work for it. The thorns came up. There was violence in the earth. Mankind was fallen, and death was following us wherever we went. And this is all because Adam and Eve failed to be the image bearers they were created to be. So God is obsessed with image, but he's not the only one. We live in a world that is bombarded with imagery, and we as the created respond to it. Think about this, guys. The music we listen to, we adopt it, we start playing it onto our radio. The idols that we follow, I'm not saying necessarily physical idols, but we, you, that's, a, that's a fine line, guys, the way we treat some of the people in this world. Look at the youth. They're worshiping them. It is a type of idol worship. They may not recognize that, but we want to mimic. We want to we imitate those that we follow, those role, mo- role models. And so we are obsessed with image just as much as he is. We end up deciding to take on an image if we like it or not, because at the end of the day, we are, we're impacted by the culture we're in. But God says, I've created you to be separate from the culture you're in. I've created you to be a peculiar and unique people. I gave you my image, and you're supposed to go into those cultures and transform them. But what we're doing instead is we're repeating the sin of our father, Adam, and we're just repeating his image, that image of death. It follows us wherever we go. So if we accept it or not, we are reflecting someone's image. And I guess the big question would be why? Why are we reflecting someone's image? Some of it's pretty pretty low-hanging fruit. We should be able to figure this one out. At the end of the day, the image that we bear is what we bring with us into the world. And ultimately, if we are the image of the creator, then when we bring that image with us, we bring life. But I think on a more personal note, the big question of why is because with image comes identity. In short, we are all desperate to answer that question. Who am I and do I belong? I would like to look at four different moments in scripture where self-image and how that person or group of people saw themselves affected change. Now, you may not agree with some of my interpretations on some of this, and that's okay because sometimes the answer is yes and yes. And if you think it's yes and no, we can talk about it later. Now is not the time. But um, I call this one, we are all grasshoppers. Okay. So this is a very familiar story. At this point, Israel, the mixed multitude, had been just delivered from Egypt by God's right hand and outstretched arm. They had been in slavery. They, they had this idea that they were second-class citizens. There was no inheritance to speak of. They were just made to make bricks and not even with straw. God comes in in a mighty way. They don't even know who this God is yet. He's a generic God. They've been in a culture that's been immersed with God, 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 God. And all of a sudden, this God that they did not know shows up and starts defending them and fighting on their behalf. And all of a sudden, like, who is this God? And so the term for God in that respect is a very generic term. And it's when he takes them into the wilderness where he starts to reveal the personal elements of God and who he is. That's a whole other talk for another time. But the, the, in summary, Israel, the mixed multitude, this, these were other slaves from other nations, even the Egyptians who said, ah, I'm going to follow that one versus that one. 
They left Egypt as a mighty people, a conquering army. They had just defeated, through the help of God, the known military might of the world. Even Pharaoh, the king of the world from that respect, was cast into the depths of the sea to be seen no more. And at this point, as a mighty people, God brings them into the wilderness and says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I want to show you who I am. I want to show you my image. I'm going to bring you to Mount Sinai. And from Mount Sinai, you, we are in awe of him. God, don't speak. We can't hear you. It's too much. What they say is good. That's what he says. Okay. So he, he uses Moses as an ambassador, as an image bearer of himself to kind of uh, to communicate his love language to us. And so he gives us his, his heart. He gives us his commandments. He gives us his, his, I would say, document of immigration, in my opinion, because we are all cut off. We all were in the image of Adam. We all had a death as a problem. He says, I will make you a mighty people. I will make you my family, Israel. You will be my people. And Israel's job, like Adam's job, was to go out into the world and change the world as they knew it. So what happens when we have family? When we adopted or born, it doesn't matter. When you are in a family unit, in the old days, you had an inheritance. Nowadays, it's kind of hard to do that, but we're trying. You had an inheritance. The goal was to have a legacy, to pass something on to your kids. And You know what? I could pass a ton of money off to my kids, but it's not any good if I don't pass off the values, the spiritual discipline, the things that actually matter. So God is trying to give them an inheritance, and he... he kind of conceptualizes that in the promised land. He says, this is my inheritance for you forever, for all generations, and you will not be able to lose that inheritance. So he brings them to the promised land. He brings them to the border of the promised land. And they, we know the story of the 12 spies. And in Numbers 13, 31 through 33, we hear, have the report of the 10 spies that return. And the two, we, we know about those other two, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But Numbers 13, 31 through 33 but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. And all people who saw that there and all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. It's interesting here because I'm, I'm actually just thinking about this right now. This wasn't a part of my thought process prior, but those 10 spies really played the role of the serpent. It's interesting because God says the land is good. It's bountiful. You are mighty people. You're victorious. I want you to go out into the world. I want you to do those things. And they come back with the false report. They presented to the rest of the people. Well, did he really say that? Is his promise as good? Is it really that good of a land? There's giants. We're going to die. So while I know it's not word for word, I think there is something similar there happening. Because God does like to work in cycles, and he likes to kind of repeat the themes because it takes us a while to figure it out. So what's interesting is while God had given them an image at, the, at Mount Sinai just earlier, and they were a victorious people, he was their, the right hand, outstretched arm of God. He had given them a sense of purpose, royalty. They were a mighty army. They get to the promised land and they, they see themselves and say, we're grasshoppers. They rejected the image of God, the image that he had just given them. They said, no, we're just grasshoppers. We can't do this. And in a way, 
They accepted the lie of the world. I think a lot of us, we meet Messiah, and God says, you are going to, you, I love you. You have dignity. You, you, I want to lift you up. I want you to be my son, my daughter. And then we go out into the world, and the world starts saying, no, you're nothing but a grasshopper. We're going to squash you. You're not going to make it. And in this respect, I believe that they believe that lie. And when they accepted that, God says, tell them this, as surely as I live, Adonai swears, as surely as you have spoken in my ears, I will do this to you. Your carcasses will fall in the desert. It's tough, but the same thing happened to Adam. He was made in the image of God, and then he decided to abandon that image. And what happened? There was death. And in the same way, Israel had the opportunity to be the image bearers into the promised land, and they saw themselves as grasshoppers and what was left. God says, you are as you say you are, and you will die. So we have a choice when we meet Messiah and the image that we take. We have a choice who we're going to be, and we have a choice to accept the lie because the enemy will lie to us. That's their job. They're going to tell you who you are, and you have to say what you have to decide to either accept it or reject it. And so that brings me to my second example. Matthew 15, 21 through 28 is about the Canaanite woman. I call this one rejecting the lie. Matthew 15, 21 through 28, leaving that place, Yeshua withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. And Yeshua did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's weird. That's interesting. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. A little persistent there. Well, that's good. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I want to stop there for a second. I feel like I know Yeshua. Would any, does, do, we, do we know Yeshua? If you don't, it's okay. But at the end of the day, a lot of us in here know Yeshua. And the Yeshua I know isn't about making second-class citizens. The Yeshua I know doesn't tear people down, but he lifts people up. The Yeshua I know said, you were once slaves, but now you are sons and daughters of the king. Yet he turns to this woman who was seen as a dog by the entire society and says, you are nothing but a dog. It doesn't sound like the Messiah that I said yes to. So I think we should ask ourselves a different question. What is he trying to do here when he calls her out in that respect? Because she says, yes, it is, Lord. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Yeshua said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is just opinion, but I believe that she was struggling with the lie. I believe she was hearing from the surrounding areas and mostly the Jewish people that she was nothing better than a dog. And I believe she was struggling. She was starting to adopt that lie. And Yeshua was saying, well, if you see yourself as a dog, then my food is not fit for you. So he was challenging her. He was challenging her own identity, saying, if you see yourself as a dog, then that my food isn't fit for you. But then she remembered something. And this is, I love this connection. You can throw it out if you want. But let's go back to the grasshopper scenario. We had the 10 spies that didn't believe. And because of them, Israel, anyone older than, I believe, 20, if I recall, 
ends up dying in the wilderness. But there were two that were different. There was Joshua and Caleb. And it says of Caleb in Numbers 14, 24 through 25, it says Caleb was different. It says, but because my servant Caleb has a different attitude and has wholeheartedly followed me, I'll bring him to the land he already explored. His descendants will possess it. What's interesting to me is that the name Caleb, according to Strong's, means dog. So she had to decide. I'm not saying it means dog like second class. Because here's the, here's the deal. We all love dogs, guys. I know if you, don't, if you say you don't like dogs, you really like dogs. You may not want one in your house, but we like dogs. And when we think of dogs, we think of a loyal companion, someone that will follow us into the fire. Someone we go hunting, that dog will go as, stay out there as long as we're hunting or whatever we're doing. You play, they will play fetch with you as long as you want. The fact is that dog is loyal. And it's, it's interesting that God uses the animal kingdom to communicate elements that we need to be better about ourselves. But dogs are special. I, we, we're a cat house, so we have two indoor cats, and we have, well, we had one outdoor cat. We don't have an outdoor cat. But we're cat people, so cats don't care about us. They just want our warmth. They're thieves. They steal your warmth. But dogs are much different. They will give you their warmth. Okay? Um, I believe this woman recognized that she had a choice in front of her. Either she is the dog, that stray, that mutt that gets kicked at and stones thrown at that has no value that people are looking to keep out of their house. Or she is the dog like Caleb who is faithful and loyal and who will fight for its master. And she said, no, even the dogs deserve the scraps from the table. Because here's what Caleb said when he was older, after he waited. Have we ever thought that realized that Caleb and Joshua knew that they could have gone in the first time, but they had to wait an additional 40 years because someone else's decision? How many times have we known that there was a promise within our grasp and the God says, wait, it's not you, it's somebody else, but I need you to wait. I think we underappreciate the 40 years they were in the wilderness. I would have been mad at everybody. I would have been giving them a bad time. But you know what? I bet you their faith was challenged because 40 years is a long time. They weren't from, I mean, who knows? Maybe they could have messed up in those 40 years and changed the whole game. But at the end of the day, Caleb and Joshua remained faithful. And when Caleb came back to that promised land, he was ready to take on those giants. He was ready to take the mountains of Judea. He said, give me those mountains. I will fight those giants. That's not a stray dog, guys. That's the dog in the house, the king that's ready to do whatever it needs to do. And this woman understood that. She called Yeshua out because he was challenging the identity that she had in herself. So we can, take, we can accept the lie that we are grasshoppers like the world tells us and get squashed. We can struggle with that identity and we can say, okay, you're calling me a dog, but I know about a dog that's ready to fight. And I think God was amazed. Yeshua was amazed in this respect. I think it's amazing that the people that he really was amazed about, uh, amazed by were usually the Gentiles. And those who are outside of the fold, it's like, you have great faith. No, no greater faith have I found in Israel. And I was like, what? So it's amazing to me. So, um, so that brings me to my third example. And this one is about rebirth. So while accepting or rejecting that the image and by extension, our identity is important as we all, but we, we all are stuck. Like I mentioned, I have brown eyes. I can't change that. I've got my dad's hands. I have my mom's hairline, thank God. So, uh, but there are things that we can't escape. 
And I think the same problem exists within the story of humanity. We have been in the process of trying to escape the death sentence that God gave Adam in the garden, and we just can't do it. God told Adam, he said, from the earth you came into the earth, you will return, you are but dust. And I think Adam looked at, at who was woman at this point. It wasn't Eve yet. He looked at his helpmate and he said, your name will be Eve because from you springs forth life and in you is hope. You will be the mother of all the living. In an interesting way, I think Adam was doing what was very, what we all need to do. When, when in a, Adam was willing to find the hope. He was willing to fight. And here's the thing, guys. Adam realized that he has been given a death sentence and he is not going to be able to reverse that. But he saw in his wife the opportunity for hope and for life. Husbands, we need our wives. Wives, we need our husbands. And we can't do this alone. Once separated, guys, it's hard to survive. We need each other to carry on that, okay? So while I can't escape my dad's genetics or my mom's genetics, and I'm grateful for their genetics. They've done a very good job, I'd like, I'd like to think. Uh, but uh, God uses the physical world to communicate a spiritual lesson. Um, I guess I would add, like to ask a question. If we are by default image bearers, we take on an image, and that image that we take is being translated to someone else if we know it or not, in a physical sense, in the physical realm, how would I stop the continuation of that image? I think the only answer is death. In that we stop the ability for them to have children. We, we abort that, that process. We, we, we kill that life. We kill that seed. And we have a lot of seed language in the beginning of the book, right? So death is the only way that we can prevent the image from being passed in a physical sense. Yet God uses death, instead of using it as an end, he uses it as a point of transformation, a point of rebirth. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And in Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we know that in all, thing God, all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among my brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So we all kind of have heard the language when Yeshua died and raised again, we also partner with him in that transformation. When we accept Yeshua into our hearts, we become his image bearer. And that is what baptism about, is about. We are seeing a, a physical representation of our old man going into the water and being brought back forth as a new creation. And from that point forward, we should be walking as new creations. We are now his image bearer. Up until that point, we were born in the image of Adam. 
But because of Yeshua, we can take on the image of the king. And what's interesting is Yeshua didn't come as the glorified Messiah. He came as the suffering servant. We hear the phrase, son of man. It gets shouted all around the first century. But in reality, the word man and Adam, I think they're the same thing. Yeshua is being called son of Adam, son of Adam. Because Yeshua is being connected to the humanity that we have. He's being connected to the problem. Because he realizes that he has to come as the first Adam so that he can become sin for us, take that upon himself, be crucified on that cross. And as Adam died in reality at the tree in the garden, Yeshua dies on the tree in the first century. And what we see here is a mirror image of the humanity dying. But where Adam didn't raise again, Yeshua does by the power of God. And it says that Yeshua was raised as the second Adam, the one new man. And so now we who are raised in Yeshua, we become that second Adam and we're called to walk forward in that new life. We are no longer to live in that fear. We're no longer to live that old life. We are to walk forward in as a new creation, restored and redeemed. But with that comes a responsibility because in the same way that Adam was given a responsibility, he said, I'm going to make you in my image. And with that comes owning the earth and that you're going to subdue it. You're going to make the earth like the garden. You were going to rule over the the birds in the air, the animals on the field and the fish in the sea. We too, once we accept Messiah at that altar call, wherever that may be and whenever that may be, we too are given a responsibility. And while I've been talking about image bearer and image you know, making, at the end of the day, all boils down to a very simple term, which is discipleship. We have a responsibility to create disciples. But I think it would be important to kind of define what is discipleship. And this is just my own definition. Um, I think we've lost the thread on what discipleship is today. I think discipleship for us is pretty much meeting once a week. You know, trying our best to show them what it means to be a good person. And if we were to look back at the first century, discipleship was a much more involved process. To be a person's disciple was, and successfully so, was to say, you can't even tell that teacher's shadow from his disciple. They are so similar in everything they do, what they say, what they believe, how they live, what they act, that their shadow and the disciple are harder, it's hard to distinguish the two. So I think it's interesting. Let's talk about shadows and reflections because those are very common concepts in our life. Um, I don't jump at my shadow. I don't think much of us do. Many of us do. I know some do. But at the end of the day, it's, it follows us. It's with us. We're familiar with it. I'd be nervous if I didn't see a shadow. But the fact is, is it's something that's very common. A reflection. When we look in the mirror, we expect a reflection to be reflecting back at us. We've all seen that movie where the young girl, the young man standing in front of the mirror in a very intense moment, and all of a sudden the reflection does something that they didn't do. Now, if that were to happen to me in the world and right now, like the movies have softened us up for those events, but fortunately that hasn't happened to me, I would freak out. The minute my reflection decides to do something that I'm not doing, it becomes something alien something foreign, something that's thinking on its own, something that isn't mirroring me. 
I think the shadow, another example of uh, Peter Pan. I don't know how many of you have seen that, but there's a whole scene where Peter Pan's chasing down his shadow. And his shadow's got a mind of its own. And he's wrestling with it. He's trying to get it attached to his foot. And is, uh, Mary, is, it, is it Mary, the, the, the girl? Um, Wendy. Wendy, sorry. I mean, you know, Mary, you know, that's another one out there. But Wendy, so she gets the thumb, uh, the thumbtack or the thimble and they sews the shadow back on. And ultimately, Peter's able to get his shadow back in line. But I know that if I was, if my shadow decided to operate of its own accord and do something that I wasn't doing, I would notice. I would jump at that shadow because at that point, that shadow has become something foreign. It's become something alien. So if discipleship is almost like being a reflection or being someone's shadow, we have to ask ourselves, what type of shadow are we casting? Because I know something about shadows. I think we all do. The stronger the light source, the more defined the shadow. So if I'm facing directly in that light, that shadow is going to be crisp. You're going to see a hair curling off of my head. You're going to see, if I'm wearing glasses, you'll see that frame that shadow is going to be defined. You will know. If you're standing like this, you're going to see everything. But the minute I step to the side of the light, all of a sudden that shadow starts to warp. The proportions are off. It becomes less defined. And God forbid I just walk into the shadows. Now my shadow is completely lost. I don't even know where he is. The fact is, we all have a shadow if we like it or not. Someone is watching how you behave. Someone is watching how you conduct yourself. Someone is saying, who do you serve and who do you believe in? And is your life reflecting that? And if we are so blessed to be able to actually have a physical disciple, someone that's actually saying, I want to I learn from you. I want to follow you. There comes responsibility, guys. You need to be directed to the light. And you know that the scripture says the Torah is a light into our path. We need to be looking into that Torah and saying, I don't want to do this my way. I want to do this his way. We need to be digging into that scripture saying, how did my master walk? Because I am his disciple. And if someone is looking to me to figure out how that is, who I represent matters. And so... I think Yeshua tried to, in his best ability, and I think he did a successful job. John 12, 44 through 45, he says, it says, And Yeshua cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Some discipleship language there. Because we know that Yeshua only came to represent the Father who is image and has no form. He became image on earth, and ultimately the way Yeshua behaved is how the Father had him behave. Yeshua was the ultimate disciple. And I'm not suggesting that he isn't divine. What I am saying, though, is that he gave us a model to follow. That's important. John 12, 49. I don't speak of my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me regarding what I should speak and say. He's only saying what the Father should what the Father says. So if you're taking the New Testament and something Yeshua said, and somehow that is contradicting what the, the Father said, we got some problems, guys, because that's not a very good disciple. That's not a very good image bearer. That's not a good shadow. That's a shadow waving his arm when you're not. 
And so what does Yeshua say to his disciples before he ascends to the right hand of the Father? He says in Matthew 18, 19 through 20, he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Yeshua showed us what it meant to walk in the image of the Father. And then he passes on that responsibility to his disciples and says, go out into the nation and create disciples and do everything I have shown you, obeying the commandments I have given you. And guys, that's not just in the New Testament. That's the entire book. Okay. So, Alan, he did not know I was going to do this. Come on up, buddy. I want to show you kind of a physical example of what discipleship looks like. He's never going to come back. I called him out during worship. Had him come up. He's never been here before. Okay, I'm staying corrected. Very rebellious disciple this one. Okay, first off, discipleship, in my opinion, again, this is just my working definition. If Alan didn't know me, I don't know if he would have readily come up. I think discipleship requires relationship. I'm into The Chosen. I think it's a great show. Some of you may love it. Some of you may hate it. Some of you may have, be, have mixed feelings about it. But there was a scene in The Chosen where the disciples are talking amongst each other. And Peter says to one of the disciples, it's like, they were talking about when they met Yeshua for the first time. And Peter says, it was like he knew me before he knew me. So I would really implore all of you, if you want to be passing an image on to someone, Build relationship first, because with relationship comes trust. Alan trusts that I'm going to bring him up here, and I'm not going to do anything too horrible to him. I mean, he might be a little nervous. But when Yeshua told those disciples, leave your nets, come follow me, they were leaving their livelihood. They were leaving all their possessions. They were leaving everything they knew. There had to be trust there. And this is someone they just met. But I got a, I got a, a hint for you all. Israel knew the Messiah before they met the Messiah. Their entire lives were built around discovering who the Messiah was. And while they might have missed him as a suffering servant, I do believe and I'm fighting for the fact that they will recognize him as the conquering king. That day is coming and we should all celebrate with them when that day arrives. So, and before even discipleship begins, it means making relationship with someone, knowing them, connecting with them. They learn to trust you. And now Alan is going to have the fun task of being my shadow. Okay, Alan, get behind me. Okay, here we go. How's he doing? <laughs> Terrible? Okay, okay, okay. That's not really fair to him, right? Like, okay, follow me. And he's trying his best to be my shadow. <laughs> Discipleship also takes communication, guys. We have to communicate what we're trying to communicate. So, Alan, I'm going to put my hands like this, and I'm going to raise my right hand, palm out, my lower. Raise my left hand, palm out, straighten my arm. Okay, how's he doing as a shadow now, guys? Okay. Guys, that is discipleship. When we walk as the Messiah walked, when Messiah lifted his arm, we lift our arm. Okay, you can go. <laughs> so... I want to, I want to, I, I don't want, I want this to be something that really is inspiring for you guys. I want you to just take this with you because if you like it or not, you are bearing the image of your king. 
And when you meet someone that's trying to figure that out, take a moment. And if you don't know what you're talking about, get back into that word. Because if you're making it up as you go, what you're doing is you're stepping to the side of that light. You're creating a funky shadow. And if you're deciding to do it your own way, and you're like, well, I'm only going to do it on this day of the week. The rest of the week, I'm going to do my own thing. Now you're heading into some of that darkness, guys. You're going to lose that shadow. And God is interested in image. He is concerned with image because the reason that Adam died was because he presented a false image of the Messiah. When we take on the image of Messiah, we connect ourselves to the source of life. And in the same way that I think, I think when Moses struck that rock the second time, it wasn't so much that he disobeyed God. I believe that was, he did disobey God. Let's not make that mistake. He did. But what he did is he distorted the image of the Messiah because we know that Paul says Yeshua is the rock that followed us throughout the wilderness. And the first time Moses was told to strike the rock. And the second time he said, teach them to speak to the rock. But instead Moses strikes the rock. And we know the Messiah only dies once for all. So Moses, while God, he's in the promised land, guys, he's, we're going to get to talk to him. He, he didn't lose his salvation. This isn't a workspace message. God is interested and concerned about who we are presenting to the world because when you distort the image of the Messiah, you are no longer connecting them to the source of life. And God is gracious and God is good. I believe our Christian brothers and sisters, while they may do things a little differently and we may question what shadow they're casting, they are connected to the source of life. So let's work together. Let's, let's start being ironing that sharpens iron. Let's be that community that when a child is, be it a full-grown adult child that's in the middle of the street that needs to be picked up and adopted, let's pick them up. Let's bring them into the family because if they're left out there on their own without covering, without food, without clothes, they will die. And God has chosen us. I don't know why he chose Israel. I don't know why he chose us. God could have done this on his own. He doesn't need us, guys. But he decided to work with us because, you know what, he's glorified when we, flawed vessels, messed up parents that aren't getting it right. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. But at the end of the day, he's like, I still can be glorified through you. I'm going to use the foolish things of the world. I'm going to be that part that uses the broken vessel to bring about my will. So yes, let's be humbled the fact that God is willing to use us, but let us celebrate that he's willing to use us. But take that, take that opportunity seriously because there's somebody in your shadow, guys. You may not know it, but there is somebody in your shadow, and they're looking at how you walk. And are you going to believe the lie that the, that the world tells you that you're just a grasshopper and you have no value and you're just a bug under my feet? Or are you going to battle against that lie and say, you know, I have identity. I'm actually going to be persistent with my creator, make sure that he recognizes and knows I'm in your house. We have choices, guys, and they're real, they're real, real life choices. So in closing, I just want to say thank you so much for letting me share with you just what God has been working on in me. And I, I know that scripture is really interesting because I can look at the same scripture three times over and come away with three different things. Um, I hope so, everything I share with you really resonates with you. I pray the Holy Spirit confirms that. And if, if there's something I said and you're not sure about, search it out. I won't take offense. Let me know what I got wrong. I'll hear from you. So um, I love you guys. And uh, that's, that's what I have to share. So.